You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. We're carrying on with a series this morning called Chosen. Uh, If you were here last week, uh, that was begun. Uh, Pastor Martin started that series by looking at the life of Moses. And sorry, Daniel, sorry, it's Moses next week, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Sorry, I had my list in my head. So we started with Daniel last week, and today we are on with Joseph. And my theme today is a very powerful one. It's the idea of chosen for the saving of many lives, which, which sounds really grand, but actually in the context of the life of Joseph, it's so important to look at some of these ideas. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to read from Genesis 39, and uh, I want to take a little bit of time to read this passage together. So it's Genesis chapter 39, and we're going to read from verse 20. Now let me just help you with the context here, because some people in the room will really know the story of Joseph. Maybe some of you, you've never really heard of this Joseph, though you, you may have uh, crossed paths with him uh, by hearing his story in other settings. But we're about to jump into the life of Joseph right in the middle. We've been singing about being in the middle earlier on this morning. We're jumping into this at an amazing, amazing moment. Up to this point, a couple of dramatic things have happened to Joseph. We're introduced to him as a 17-year-old. He's his father's favorite son, and his father has a few. And the other sons essentially take a tremendous jealousy or hatred towards Joseph. As a result, they strip off his coat. They sell him off to slave traders who are heading down to Egypt. Joseph gets sold in Egypt to Potiphar's family. Potiphar is the captain of the guard of Egypt, so a pretty important man. And while there, Joseph prospers, the Lord is with him, he does really well, but he ends up, uh, well, he takes the eye of Potiphar's wife, and she is so obsessed with him that every day she tries to get him to have sex with her. In a moment, it seems, of desperation, she reaches out for him, and Joseph runs away, and as a result, she accuses Joseph to her husband of attempting to rape her. So Joseph now finds himself in this moment. This is what we're about to pick up the story. When we end the story, Joseph is about to leave prison and in a 24-hour period become the, the second most powerful man in Egypt. So it's a pretty extreme uh, bookends to this story we're about to read. So we're jumping right in the middle, but the power of this middle bit can't really be God unless you understand the bit that's gone before and the bit that's about to happen, which we'll allude to as we go. Does that make sense to you? Sorry about that. So Genesis chapter 39, and we're jumping in at verse 20. So he's been put in prison, okay? And in the end of verse 20, it says this, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was, uh, was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Sometime later, you love those little phrases in the Bible. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. 
Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. In the same prison where Joseph was confined, the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not, dream, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. Ah, oh, this is what it means, said Joseph to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream, big mistake. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Ah, this is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, the third day was, was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he was once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Wow, what an amazing, amazing passage. And that's that middle bit that we're going to spend a little bit of time on this morning. Joseph's uh, life is really a blockbuster life. And uh, it's so remarkable, and excuse the pun, colorful, that it literally has become uh, a, a movie. And, of course, uh, a certain uh, uh, Martin Lloyd Webber has made a small fortune off the back of this remarkable and amazing story. Uh, and it really is an incredible roller coaster. It has everything in the contact. It love, it has mercy, forgiveness, generosity, betrayal, and treachery. It is all going on in this remarkable life. And one of the, the dangers of the life of Joseph, when we read it in the Bible, is that we just flick from one page to the next, and we're drawn from one event to the next, and our eyes are drawn to the big moments that are happening. But a couple of things are really important for us to understand in the context of Joseph's life. When we meet Joseph here in the Bible, we meet him in Genesis 37, 
as a 17-year-old, and he dies in Genesis 50 at the ripe old age of 110. That means the life of Joseph that takes us just a few pages to flick over in the Bible is 93 years in this particular process, from 17 to 110. And it's really easy to miss that sense of journey and process as we go. We also recognize that actually in between Joseph getting his dreams when he's 17, dreams that later we would know were from God, when he gets those dreams at 17 to the moment when he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt, 13 years have passed. And in fact, we've read a little about what happens in those 13 years. He serves in the house of Potiphar as a slave, and then he is put in prison where he serves out the rest of that time. Don't you love, just love how the Bible puts it? Some time later. Uh, the Bible summarizes sometimes a whole chunk of time, 10, 11, 12, 13 years in three little words, some time later. That's just typical of the Bible. And it's important for us to understand the passage of time that has happened here. But another big moment which we will encounter in the life of Joseph is the moment where Joseph meets his brothers again, the brothers who sold him. You can read that in chapter 37. They sell him off as a slave. In fact, at one point, they're debating whether to kill him or not. And they decide not to kill him, but to sell him. From the moment they sell him and Joseph heads over the horizon towards Egypt to the moment where Joseph reveals himself to them. Now, he meets them in chapter 42, but then he reveals himself in chapter 45. He actually says, I am Joseph. From those two moments, probably something in the region, oops, too far, something in the region of 22 years have passed. Now, when we read the story of Joseph, what's really tempting and easy to do is let your eyes go to the big events. What we naturally do is sort of minimize or forget the process and passage of time in between those events. So it's really easy to look at Joseph at the beginning and Joseph at the end and sort of just see those big moments, but ignore the fact that in between those big moments, a lot is happening. Joseph will become eventually famous for the man who saved many lives. That's what we're thinking about today. But in order to become the man who will save many lives, Joseph has got to work through some serious processes in the journey of his life. And I want you to see uh, the language of Joseph. When he eventually meets his brothers, look at this. Look at this language. Very, very powerful indeed. He says this to his brothers. And now, do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Okay? Look at the next verse, verse 7. He says again, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And then again, sorry, I didn't go on. Verse 8, it repeats the idea. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now I want you to notice some dead easy to miss this detail. Joseph has now met his brothers 22 years approximately after the moment they sold him off to slavery. And I want you to notice that Joseph is now reinterpreting the events. He says to them twice, if you read the passage in, in chapter 45, you sold me. 
But three times he says, God sent me. Now note that. It's, very, it's so easy to miss because we're rushing to the big punchline of the story. But this is the punchline of the story. This is an amazing moment where Joseph demonstrates that he's able to look back on the events of his life and not just see the actions of men, but see the hand of God at work. Joseph is, in a strange way, reinterpreting the past. He's, you could even argue he's sort of changing the past. He's saying, because what really happened was they sold him, and then God delivered him. But here's what Joseph is saying. You sold me, but God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. Twice you sold me, but three times God sent me. And in fact, this interpretation of these events is so dynamic that later on, when the psalmist, who writes Psalm 105 and tells the story of Israel, which includes Joseph's story, he interprets the story in the way Joseph did. Psalm 105, the psalmist says this, that Joseph, sent by God, sold as a slave. Note that. When the psalmist writes the story, he's not reading the story from the chronological events of history. He is interpreting the story from how Joseph understands the story. Chronologically, he was sold, and then God delivered him. But when Joseph looks back, he says, God sent me. John, what's your point? Well, the point is this. Somewhere, somewhere, in the moment between being sold as a slave and standing as the second most powerful man in Egypt, Joseph learned something which changed his world. Joseph came to a place of understanding by faith that although men were at work and men were doing certain things, actually he was able to look back and see God at work. Now this man would eventually become really powerful. He would not only save his brothers, but he would save many other nations of the world. But actually, actually, before we get to that point of saving the world, Joseph's got to learn some stuff. He's got to learn some stuff about God. He's got to learn some stuff about himself. And he's got to learn some stuff about process. And this is the big idea that I want to sort of land with you today and in a couple of different ways encourage you with in your own journey. Process doesn't take us to purpose. Process is actually part of your purpose. So one of my favorite places in the world to go to is Singapore. I was there in December just before Christmas, and I normally go with Emirates from Birmingham and have a little break in the middle because it's a long flight. So seven and a half hours to Dubai, and then a couple of hours there with a bit of a drink, and then back on the plane for another eight hours or so. Breaks up that long flight, but I couldn't get that route this time, so I went with British Airways directly from London. Fourteen and a half hours on a plane. It sounds glamorous when you say it quickly. It really isn't. There's only so many movies you can watch before going insane, right? My bum literally felt numb. I didn't, you know, I knew I have a bum, but I couldn't feel it anymore after 14 and a half hours. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I love Singapore. I love getting there. I love the food there. I love the people there. I love engaging there. Martin and Esther, your pastor, have been there many, many times. I love it, love it, love it. But to get there, they haven't yet invented a pick me up and drop me down process. To get there, I've got to get on that plane, sit in a tube. 
for 14 and a half hours, knowing I can't get off. And here's the thing. If you fight that, it's a long journey. If you embrace it, it becomes part of the journey. Are you with me? And I can either sit on that plane and go, I hate planes. Or I can sit on that plane and go, yeah, it's a long journey, but the only way I'm going to get to Singapore is getting on this plane. So I've just got to enjoy it. Eat that food. Watch that movie. Put up with the guy snoring beside me. I've just got to get through this because it is part of the process. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the most difficult ideas to understand in our journey of spirituality. Because even as we uh, become followers of Jesus, the danger is we just want to get to where God wants us to go. We just want to get there. We just want to arrive. We want to be the finished article. But the Bible doesn't allow anybody or any community or anything to get somewhere too quickly. God takes us on journeys, and it's how we engage that process is going to determine, uh, in many cases, how we, can I say this carefully, arrive at the destination. So you can either fall off a plane or walk off a plane. You can either get off that plane saying, wow, what a pleasure, what a privilege, what a blessing that it got me to Singapore. Or you can go, do you know, I hate planes. But at the end of the day, the attitude with which I embrace the process will determine the condition with which I arrive at the place. They're all connected. We won't just arrive. We will arrive by going through something, going through somewhere. In order to get to there, we have to leave here to get to there. And there's no shortcuts. I'm really sorry. If there was, then people like me would be multimillionaires because we'd be just selling that shortcut to you. There is no shortcut. Don't be looking for the shortcut. Stop frustrating yourself by looking for the shortcut. There is none. Not even for Joseph. This young man called by God to save the world, there was no shortcut. So in that gap, in between being sold and becoming second most powerful man, he learned some stuff about process. And I want to just look at three quick ideas within that gap that he, he learned. He, here's the first thing I, I think we see in Joseph. First of all, he refused to be a victim. Now, I have to be really careful here. This is, this is controversial and potentially offensive to everyone uh, uh, who's listening to this because it, it sounds a bit harsh and it sounds a bit brash, but it's true. And I want you to see something which is really, really powerful. Look at the verse that preceded uh, our little reading it says this, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now again, just a piece of information there, but it's so, so important. Joseph has ended up in prison even though he has done nothing wrong. In fact, the opposite. Joseph has done everything right. It's not that Joseph was passive. He, he, just, he just wasn't passive. It, it's not the fact that he just didn't have sex with her. I mean, that would be admirable enough. But it's the fact that he doesn't have sex with her for two reasons. Number one, I don't want to hurt my master, and I don't want to sin against God. Now, note that. It's easy to miss that story. Joseph isn't just saying no to sex. He's saying yes to God. Come on. He's not just being penalized because he, he, didn't, he didn't have his way with Potiphar's wife. He's, he's actually now suffering, even though when no one was looking, 
Nobody was around. Nobody was in the house. Read the story for yourself. Joseph could have organized the rotas so that no one would ever know him and Potiphar's wife were doing a thing. But when he's on his own and no one is looking, he doesn't just refuse sex. He's not just saying no to her. He's saying yes to God. And you would think when you say yes to God, everything rocks. I said yes to God in my job, therefore I should get a promotion. I said yes to God in my family, therefore my family should be blessed. I've said yes to God in my finance, therefore. And we can just add those therefores in all the time. And many, many times when you do the right thing, you get the right response. But every now and again, You'll do the right thing and pick up the mucky end of the stick. You'll end up with a response or a reaction or a conclusion that you did not expect. And this is a big moment of faith in the journey. If we're going to ultimately become everything God wants us to become in purpose and in mission, both as a church and as individuals, there will be moments when you will do the right thing and not get what you deserve. And life is just not fair, and it sucks, and it's horrible, and it's awful, and it's unjust. But what you do and what I do at that moment absolutely is crucial to what happens next. Now, please don't be offended by what I'm about to say to you. Hear it right to the end. Being victimized is an experience. Becoming a victim is a choice. Now, I'm not minimizing anybody's pain in this room. That's why I'm being really careful. That's why I've taken a long time to set that idea up. So please, please, don't come at me at the end because what you've gone through is painful and difficult. I know it is. And, and, and I would say this. Every person in this room has been victimized. If you've lived more than five minutes on planet Earth, you've probably ended up on the wrong end of something. Is that fair enough, or is it, are you guys living in a bubble here in Coventry? <laughs> Everybody has been victimized, but what you do with that experience will determine whether that experience defines you or empowers you. Look, don't, don't be victimized by what people do. Don't allow what they do to define who you are. Now, I'm not minimizing what they did. I'm not. And Joseph doesn't. It's serious stuff. But don't allow it to become your defining moment. And Joseph gets through this. He has to get through this. If he doesn't get through this, he's going to die in prison. Now, he might physically stay alive, but he's going to die inside. He's going to wither in prison if he keeps thinking about what she did. And it's interesting, when Joseph gets out of prison, he never mentions what she did. Come on. Which is probably a sign he got over it. Are you with me? Come on, are you there? On this process with God, there will be moments you'll do the right thing and you will get an amazing response. But there will be moments. And some of you are in those moments right now where you've done everything right. And you're in a sort of a mucky moment messy moment, prison moment, 
Don't allow what has been done to knock you off the process. Come back to what Pastor Martin said. Hand that ball of string to God. Say, I don't get this. Don't understand it. But you're in control. I trust you. Come on, are you there? That's a big faith issue. And everyone who gets to a chosen moment, a moment where they believe they're fulfilling a purpose that God's called them to, will have to deal with that, unfortunately. Does that make sense to you? Here's the second thing he learned. He had to learn to give his best. Really, really simple, but really, really powerful. Easily lost in the detail of the story, but we touched on it in the story we read. Look at this in verse 22 of 39. It says, The warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The very next phrase says this, The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. Easy to miss that. Now, there's a lovely little pretext to that in that it says that the Lord was with Joseph. Beautiful moment. Even though he's ended up in prison, the Lord is still with him. So optically, it looks like Joseph has been abandoned, but the Lord has never let him down. We sang about that today, right? And so Joseph's in this prison moment, but it says the Lord was with him. And it says, secondly, the Lord favored Joseph in such a way that the warder, the prison warder, saw something in Joseph that maybe he may not have seen. Now, now it's dead easy to interpret that as sort of the prison warder saw Joseph in this rose-colored spectacle way and therefore just promoted Joseph blindly. But the text is telling us something else. The warder saw the ability of Joseph. He saw the skill of Joseph. He saw that Joseph could be an asset to him. And so what did the warder do? He released him. And it says here in the context of this, he didn't pay any attention to anything in the prison because Joseph, actually by inference, was so good at what he did. The prison warder let Joseph have a position of influence and authority in the prison because Joseph, in the midst of his own struggle, got up every day and gave his best. And in our little story of the cupbearer and the baker, it's a bit of a troublesome story, this, we see this again. Look at the language. When these two prisoners are brought in, look at what it says, verse 4 of chapter 40, the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph. And look what it says, and he attended them. Easy to miss that. Look at what it says in verse 6 of our, of our story. It says this, he, that's Joseph, saw that they were dejected, and in the next verse down, it says this, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. Now, easy, easy to miss this detail, just rushing past. If you slow down and look at those individual verses, here's what you're seeing. Joseph is paying attention. Joseph saw. Joseph said, tell me your dreams. What does that say? It's telling us that Joseph was fully absolutely and totally engaged in the moment. He wasn't sitting in his prison cell saying, I'm not helping you. I'm not serving. I'm here uh, because of an injustice. Why should I get up and help? No, no. Joseph is getting up every day and he is contributing. He's giving. He's serving. He's doing and bringing his very best to that moment. Joseph is actively and proactively bringing his best to the prison, to the point where when two very important prisoners come in, the prison warder says, I know who to give them to. 
Let's give them to Joseph. Joseph will take care of them. And what does it say? He attended to them. He even interprets their dreams. Dead easy to miss this when we're looking at the second most powerful man in the world with his gold ring and his chariot and his power. We miss all of the fact that actually while he was in prison, he gave his best to the prison moment. Don't normally get many amens at a point like this, but let me say it anyway because it's so important. Don't wait for a special moment. Seize the moment. You may be in the job from hell. And you want a better job and you know God's got a better job for you. But the job from hell is where you are. And if you can give your best there, come on. You'll give your best anywhere. And let's don't fall into the trap that, oh, well, when, when I get to where I'm supposed to go, that's when I'll give my best. I've met people over the years have said things like, when I earn more money, I'll give. And they never do. They never do. Because it's not about money. It's not about uh, the job they're in. It's not about the postcode. It's about the attitude within them at that moment. If you can give when you've nothing, you'll give when you've something. Come on, if you can give your best when you're in the job from hell, then when you've got the job of your dreams, you're going to fly. If you can give your best in a postcode you don't want to live in, then when you find yourself in the place that God has destined you to be, you will be a blessing to that place in the most remarkable way. And if we're, if we're playing a game that, that when I get there, I'll be better, we're fooling ourselves. Joseph had to learn to be his best in Potiphar's house. He had to learn to be his best in the prison. And learning to be his best there meant that when he took the throne on a multi-million pound budget, he was able to do an outstandingly excellent job. And here's what you'll notice when he becomes the second most powerful man. Pharaoh's attitude to him is exactly the same as the prison warder's attitude to him. Pharaoh left it to Joseph. Didn't concern any, with anything that was under Joseph's care. Why? Because Joseph had given his best in Potiphar's house. Joseph had given his best in the prison, and therefore when he gets the chance to do what he's really, 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 really good at, he's able to give his best. Come on, come on. Come on, it's faith to give your best in the prison. It's faith to give your best in the postcode you don't want to be in. It's faith to get up tomorrow morning and be the best employee of that business, even though that is not where you want to be, and even though it's not where you're destined to be, but it is where you, is where you, is where you. And if you can show up where you are, then God will show up. Come on. He'll show up if you show up. Bring him into that postcode. Bring him into that job. Bring him into that college. Bring him into that moment. Bring him into that prison. Bring him into the injustice. Bring him into it all. Let him live in the prison with you. Because he wants to be with you. But giving my best is part of that. Are you with me? Almost there. Here's the last idea and then we are landing. Last thing is I want you to see that Joseph grows 
in remarkable ways in this 13-year period. From the moment of leaving his brothers to the moment where he steps into his destiny as Savior, he grows in the most remarkable ways. And I want you to see it. Look, look at these verses. Genesis 40, verse 23. The chief, chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Now note that. In our Bible, there's a chapter division right there. And that's unfortunate because what we tend to do is stop at the end of chapter 40, have a break, come back to 41. In the Hebrew text, there is no break. Straight in. So you get three massive ideas colliding. Number one, that the cupbearer forgot him. The cupbearer did not remember him. Oh, and by the way, two full years passed. We are shown here something powerful, that Joseph has been absolutely abandoned. And in that moment of abandonment, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for Joseph to kick back, to kick against, and say, enough is enough, I've had it. I spoke to a guy on Friday, I'm just trying to help uh, do a bit of coaching with, and he said, you know, I've just had enough, I've had enough, I'm ready to pack it all in. By the end of the conversation, he wasn't so ready to pack it in, which was wonderful, was marvelous. But I understand why he wanted to pack it in. Frustration, disappointment, stuff not happening the way he thought it would happen. And he goes, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of serving. I've had enough of giving. I've had enough of giving my best. I've had enough of getting up every day and slopping out this prison. I want, I want to get free from this. And I understand that. But here's Joseph now. The cupbearer leaves and forgets him. How does that happen? How do you forget somebody like Joseph? And the Hebrew words are very strong. It if you put the two Hebrew words together, just trust me on this, it's like Joseph is expunged from his memory. It's like he disappears. It's like the hard drive is wiped. It's an incredible thing. What, what do we learn? Well, three things really quickly in that gap. Joseph did not become bitter with the cupbearer. John, how do you know that? Because when Joseph got out of prison... Complete silence about the cupbearer. Now, if Joseph had been Irish, <laughs> then the cupbearer would have been in trouble. <laughs> First thing he'd have done, getting out of prison, right? Where does the cupbearer live? What's his address? <laughs> Let's go around and sort him out. Two years worth of beatings are waiting for this man, right? Well, when Joseph gets out of prison, not a mention of the cupbearer. Sometimes silence speaks louder than a million words. And if you rehearse the blame, you resign to the pain. If you keep rehearsing the blame, you're resigning yourself to the pain. Every time you rehearse the blame, you're going to reconnect to the pain of that event. Joseph never mentions the cupbearer because he knows if he allows the cupbearer to dominate his worldview, he will never escape the prison. Now, he might get out of prison, but he won't get out of this prison. Come on, are you there? Here's the second thing I want you to see. Joseph did not become disappointed with God. It's easy in a moment like that where you feel forgotten to lift your voice to God and say, what are you doing? Now, I know in a good godly spiritual place like this where you've just fasted for like 21 days and brought I know nobody thinks like that here it's in other places that people think like that but imagine this idea of like God where are you 
Why isn't this working? I've done everything right. Even in the prison, I'm doing everything right. And I'm still stuck here. What is going on? And it would be the easiest thing in the world to become disappointed with God. How do we know Joseph didn't become disappointed with God? Because when he stands before Pharaoh, look at his words, powerful. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. It's very hard to celebrate someone you're disappointed with. He's able to say to Pharaoh, God will do it. Why? Because even in the midst of that prison, he refused to allow himself to become disappointed with God. Did he understand it all? No. But he refused to allow himself to accuse God of abandonment in the moment he was forgotten. People may forget us, but God knows exactly where we are. Come on, are you with me? So, so important. And then here's the last idea, and I'm bringing this to, I don't know if the band want to join me. You get, guys are getting ready to, to close down. He did not delay in serving Pharaoh. I want you to see this. So, so powerful. Eventually, Pharaoh has a dream. The cupbearer wakes up from his amnesia and he goes oh Pharaoh I, I remember a kid in prison Hebrew kid wow yes how did I forget him and suddenly the prison doors are opened and Joseph is ushered after being cleaned up into the presence of Pharaoh and I want you to see what it says here in the scriptures he was quickly brought from the dungeon now now when I say that Joseph didn't delay here's what I mean there's a sense in which as a prisoner, he couldn't delay. And he's a Hebrew slave on the Egyptian sex offenders register. He can't turn around to Pharaoh and say, I'm not leaving the prison, right? He has to go. He would have been grabbed by the scruff of the neck and literally taken. You're going to meet Pharaoh. So when I say he didn't delay against Pharaoh, I don't mean, I don't mean he didn't delay in the sense of, okay, I'll come with you. He had no choice. He had to go with him. I mean this. He goes from being a prisoner to standing in front of Pharaoh the same day. But he's ready. Are you with me? He didn't need to say to Pharaoh, hold on a wee minute. I just need to, I need to sort of watch that YouTube seminar on this again before I, before I meet you. Or he didn't say, oh, I need a bit of time to pray and fast to get myself ready. Joseph was able to go from prison and prison clothes into the presence of Pharaoh with his new clothes and he was able to deliver the word of the Lord because he was ready and the reason he was ready was because he embraced the process he embraced the prison he embraced the difficulty of that moment he didn't just see it as a means to an end he came to a place where he understand the prison itself is in some way part of the purpose of God and as a result of that when Pharaoh calls him he is ready process doesn't take us to purpose it's part of the purpose there are people in this room and you are fighting process because you don't like it you don't like the discomfort you don't like the pain you don't like the postcode you don't like the job you don't like where you are. And there may be lots of legitimate reasons why you don't like those things, but you find yourself there. And yet just because you're there doesn't make you less chosen. 
Joseph wasn't more chosen when he was second most powerful man in the world than when he was in the prison. He was just as chosen in prison as he was in Pharaoh's palace. It's just his clothes were different. His postcode was different. His circumstances were different, but his chosenness was the same. Can, can you with me dare to believe that your chosenness still shines through in the moments you would rather not be? That's what Joseph teaches. Oh yeah, eventually. The man would get to a powerful position, save his brothers and save the world. But first, God had to save him in the context of the journey of the prison so that Joseph would discover he wasn't sold. He was sent. He wasn't forgotten. God was with him. That the prison was as important to the purpose of saving the world as the moment he stood in the presence of Pharaoh. Why don't you stand with me? Let me pray for you right now. It's a very simple appeal, really, I'm going to pray for before we sing. Some of our songs this morning have hinted at this. The Lord is powerful, and He is as powerful in the prison. He's as powerful to be with you in the prison as He is to get you out of the prison. We tend to celebrate his power when he opens the door. We tend to ignore his power when the door remains shut. The Lord was as much with Joseph in prison as he was with Joseph in the palace. The only thing that changed was the postcode. I want to invite you as I pray to invite the Lord into the moment you're in. I don't know what it is. Some of you are in a moment that's amazing. You never want it to change because it's so good. Some of you feel like you're in that moment where you've got a ball of string and twine in front of you and you haven't got the first clue how to unravel that. And yet, the Lord is with you. And if we will invite him into the process and live present in that process, not become a victim to it, but embrace the moment we're in and give our best to the moment we're in. Ladies and gentlemen, I know it feels difficult and challenging and counterintuitive, but if we will do that, something will happen in us beyond the limitation of that prison. And so Lord, right now I pray for each man, woman, young person in this room, that wherever we are, we make a determination today to refuse to become victims of this moment. We may have been victimized, but we say no to being victims. We will not be defined by what people have done, but we will look to the living God. Lord, we invite you into this moment that we say that we will give our best. Even in the job, from hell we'll give our best even in a postcode we don't want to be in we'll give our best 
Lord, we will give our best today like Joseph. We say this moment is part of the journey of chosenness. And Lord Jesus, we invite you into our world so that, Lord, we can be everything you want us to be so that, Lord, we can live in a readiness that allows you to do whatever you want to do in us. We want to be ready. When the door opens, we want to be ready. When the, when the moment happens, we want to be ready. When Pharaoh calls, we want to be ready. So, Lord, we say today, we will make a decision of faith as chosen men and women, as men and women chosen by God. We will make a decision to live ready, to give our best, and to allow you to be everything you want to be in our world and in our moment. In Jesus' name.